You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Martin Scorsese's film The Irishman opens on Netflix this week. It reunites Scorsese with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci from his 1990 film Goodfellas and adds Al Pacino. Got rave reviews from all the critics. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by something like 3 million people on every NPR station in America. He's also been film critic for Vogue, and before that, the LA Weekly. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. His books include Sore Winners, about George Bush's America, and WKW, about Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. Last time he was here, we talked about John Le Carre. John Powers, welcome back. Happy to be here. Well, Donald Trump lists Scorsese's film Goodfellas as one of his favorite movies. It's not hard to see why there's so much gleeful mayhem in it. Do you think he'll put The Irishman on his list of favorites? No, he will not put The Irishman on his list of favorites. It's almost antithetical in a way to Goodfellas. It starts in a way as a parody of Goodfellas. You know, Goodfellas famously opens back with the flashy camera move going into a nightclub where everybody's having a great time. This one starts with essentially that same moving camera into an old folks' home you know, with, with people in their chairs and you see the drips and all of that. <laughs> so it's a, ver- it's a very different feel from the beginning. And essentially, I think it's fair to say, The Irishman is something of a critique of some of Scorsese's earlier gangster movies. The Irishman is sort of the story of what happens to the guys in Goodfellas when they get old and end up in that nursing home in the first scene with their their memories and their regrets. De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, a truck driver and professional hitman. His boss is Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino, who runs the mob in Philadelphia. Joe Pesci notably plays it quiet and intense instead of uh, over the top. In The New Yorker, Anthony Lane described the Irishman as wild strawberries with handguns. Somehow that didn't make it into the advertising for this film, but, but I think he's onto something here about an old man remembering his life. Oh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a classic kind of trope in, you know, in literature and film. Like old guys looking back and then reflecting and ruing is like a, a great tradition. Um, Scorsese really hasn't done very much of this. I mean, he's now himself an old guy. And it's hard when you look at the film not to think of him doing 
essentially what he's having his character do, which is to look back over the territory he's covered over the years and ref- and reflecting on it. What's interesting about 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 the Irishman is that it's not fun in the way of something like Goodfellas. You know, it's not accidental that gangbangers and Donald Trump both loved Goodfellas. It has that kind of anarchic, almost nihilistic energy. There's lots of fun in watching people get get killed. It's it's about getting rich and having and partying and it all being fabulous. It's it's kind of an it's a long movie, which is also part of it. It's long, it's not flashy, the scenes are muted. Even Al Pacino is an understated, which I think is is a sign that you that you have a muted film. As you say, De Niro in the nursing home is full of regrets, but these regrets are not about the his crimes. They're not about the people he's killed. What he regrets is his failures as a father to his daughters, and the girls are the moral voice of the film. What do you make of this? Part of his regret is that he's not able to feel anything, except by the end what he feels is regret that his daughter doesn't love him, which brings you back to the, you know, the classic old gangster thing of family so that you care about your family. So it's, it's kind of bad that you shot the head off all these people, but essentially they weren't family. But your daughter knew it, and she doesn't love you. And now that's something you can regret. When he's with the priest, he can't really feel bad enough with the priest. He's, he, 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 what he wants is he wants his daughter to love him. He doesn't want God to forgive him. So the daughter, as a child, is the silent witness who condemns him uh, with her eyes, but I have to say, she's a very minor character if you compare this with The Sopranos and Tony's daughter, Meadow. Right from the beginning of The Sopranos, year one, the famous college trip episode of season one, Meadow asked Tony in the front seat of the car, are you in the mafia, Dad? And Meadow is frightened and upset when she sees that he has literally blood on his hands. Scorsese sort of makes this gesture to family, but there's nothing like that here. It's really just the men getting older and sadder. Well, the thing is, Scorsese's never really been very interested in women. He's not himself a wise guy, but he grew up worshiping those guys, you know, as the asthmatic kid in Little Italy. Those were like like the star athletes for him. Like, these are the people you want to be. And they've always seemed kind of magical to him. And the people around him and like the wives and stuff have never particularly interested him. And that's true with the daughters. The daughter has, she has a functional role, but she's barely in the movie. And when she's in the movie, she's in the movie as a witness and as a condemner rather than as a three-dimensional character with a life of their own. You know, by comparison, as you say, The Sopranos, it's completely different. The daughter is much more vivid and present. She almost feels tacked on to help people get the moral point of the film. In Goodfellas, that was also about the men, but at least their wives were present. Here the wives just sit in the back seat and, and, and complain. And they smoke. They, they smoke. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think you can tell you're in 2019 when the fact that people are really smoking a lot in a car is like a huge plot point. <laughs> dramatic. Well, I, I remember in Goodfellas, there is one real character. Lorraine Bracco was nominated for Best Supporting Actress there's nothing like that with the wives in The Irishman. I know Lorraine Bracco, this is a big deal for her because she was offered the role of Carmela 
on The Sopranos, and she turned it down. She said, I'm sick of mafia wives. I want to do something more interesting. So she took the role of Dr. Melfi to be a positive role model as an Italian. It's Miles from De Niro. Um, I think what, what's true is, is that Scorsese isn't a specialist in women. He, he's actually had some good female characters. I realize, you know, the enraging bull, Kathy Moriarty's character is, is very good. He made The Age of Innocence, you know. I mean, so he's not uninterested in women in the way that I don't, that, that some guys are. But nevertheless, it's never been the strength of his. And he's more interested in the business of, the, of gangsterism. And in this particular film, I think it's about different kinds of gangsterism so that the Joe Pesci character is corporate gangsterism. And Jimmy Hoffa, who the film shows our hero killing, is not corporate gangsterism. He's slightly more freewheeling, anarchic, almost artistic gangsterism <laughs> and linked to a larger movement, which he, I think, believes in as well as exploiting. So the movie claims to tell the true story of the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. He was the powerful and corrupt leader of the Teamsters Union in the 50s who disappeared in 1975. The movie also claims to tell the truth about various other gangland killings, and there was a real Frank Sheeran who really did claim in a, a deathbed told-to book to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. But in real life, lots of good investigative journalists have looked into the exciting story of what happened to, to Jimmy Hoffa, and nobody thinks Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. There's a devastating expose for people who are interested at Slate.com by Bill Tonelli. But here's the question. Does that fact affect our judgment of the movie? And if so, how? I, part of the attractiveness of the movie is the way it claims to be connected to real life and shows us lots of real things happening, which include the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy, and there's even Watergate in there. Uh, what do you make of the, the the claims that this is the true story? Well, I think what's interesting about the claims it's the true story is how quickly they back off. When, you know, when reporters ask them, they think, well, it's essentially the true story, or it could be the true story. They actually aren't really holding fast to the idea that Frank Sheeran, for example, killed Jimmy Hoffa. But when you are presenting something as a true story and then expanding that out so that it's the mafia that killed JFK, you know, and, and just taking that as just a received fact as part of the film, it doesn't make the film less entertaining. I, I don't know what you do because almost every film contains some historical lie. The The Crown, which is this hugely pop, popular Netflix thing, which, you know, which even my leftist friends love passionately. They all watch The Crown. Everybody watches The Crown. They're making stuff up all the time. Probably more interesting and complicated because Frank Sheeran, who officially kills Jimmy Hoffa in the movie. I, a reporter friend named Dan Muldea, who has a photocopy on his website of Frank Sheeran's lawyer threatening to sue Dan Muldea because Muldea had claimed that Sheeran was in Detroit on the day that Hoffa was killed. <laughs> but then he sold his book and suddenly he's turned himself into the murderer of Jimmy Hoffa, even though he's prepared to sue to claim he wasn't there before. It's a tricky thing because at some point, Art fills people's heads with lies as well. We used to make fun of Reagan for actually believing things had happened because he'd seen it in a movie. Whereas now, well, movies are doing this all the time and more and more people are believing it, which at a time when people don't 
think that objective truth exists in any way. That may be a bad thing. And then there's the last 30 minutes of The Irishman. Our protagonists are old and sick and sad and pathetic. The reviewer for The Guardian wrote, we are suddenly made aware of the ultimate price of this lifestyle and of the crushing savagery of old age. It's a finale of stifling bleakness, of the pathetic emptiness of crime and of men who mistake their priorities in life, the discovery arriving all too late. And there's almost a meta-maturity for Scorsese, as if he is looking back on his own career, the film leaving us with a haunting reminder not to glamorize violent men and the wreckage they leave behind, close quote, The Guardian. Do you think that's right? Well, we have to unpack some of that. It's not the worst possible life. The old folks' home is a pretty nice one. You know, you, you know I mean, in terms of the wages of crime, so, so start there. It is probably Scorsese offering some sort of self-critique, but not in quite the powerful terms that the people, I think, want it to be. If nothing else, he who reads his press clippings knows that for 45 years, people have been saying he's too into these guys. <laughs> he's been pretty into all sorts of violent stuff pretty recently. So unless, unless this is like some sort of final film, this is his final statement where he's feeling bad about it, I'm not completely convinced that he's had a huge change of heart. I didn't find the, the ending as devastating you know, but maybe because I, I'm able to die bitter and alone all by myself. You know, I, I actually don't need to go to a movie to have to learn that about about reality. But leaving that aside, is that I, I just felt the last half hour kind of belabored points rather rather than made you feel them more deeply. It was another one of the millions of Hollywood movies that doesn't know how to end. I kept thinking, oh, it's over, and then there was another scene that I thought essentially made the same point. We haven't said much yet about Jimmy Hoffa, who's, of course, a major figure in American history and a pretty important figure in this film. Al Pacino plays Jimmy Hoffa as a passionate, almost performance artist version of a union leader for whom everything is personal. And I think, I think the reason why Hoffa matters in the film is not simply that he's running this huge, incredibly powerful union and that he was mobbed up and even more mobbed up in reality than, than the film seems to suggest. But in the logic of the film, the hero Frank Sheeran is torn between two people he loves. He loves the Joe Pesci figure, who's the corporate mafia guy. And then he loves Jimmy Hoffa, who's the dirty union guy, but who for whom everything is personal. Pesci's the guy, which is, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it's just business. It's not personal. And for Hoffa, the Teamsters are his. He created them. He's the king of it. It's like his work of art. And I think in the logic of the film, on the one hand, you have the corporate guy played by Pesci, who even wears the big glasses that someone like Lou Wasserman used to wear in Hollywood. And then you have the more artistic, slightly thuggish, but he has his own vision guy, which is Hoffa. And in fact, Frank, played by De Niro, is torn between those two guys in the same way that Scorsese in his life has always been torn between the fact that he, he has to work with corporate movie people. He wants to make a lot of money. His nut is huge. He needs a big payday. He wants his movies out there and they have to be big. You know, Martin Scorsese does not make tiny little movies. He's talked about going back to make those tiny little movies and he never goes back to make those tiny little movies. But he's also very much drawn to the artistic, personal guy, difficult, 
flamboyant who has his own vision of things. And I think so, like almost every film, if you look at it, can be a film about the filmmaker's sense of their own filmmaking. And in this case, you see that same tension between like the corporate, soulless, all business and the person for whom everything is personal and I've created it in its mind. Well, this reminds me of another film, one that's not sad and slow like The Irishman, Ford v. Ferrari with Matt Damon, Christian Bale, really enjoyable movie, a cool Texan and an easily overheated Brit in the car racing business. It also claims to tell a true story. It's also a buddy film. It's also filmed pretty much without women. It's also full of gorgeous old cars from the 50s and 60s. And it also has suppressed a similar theme. The title makes it seem like this is a conflict between the assembly line of Detroit and the artisanal workshops of, uh, of northern Italy for supremacy in the racing world. But it's easy to see it in the light that you have just uh, sketched out. The real struggle in this movie is between a couple of brilliant race car designers and the managers and bureaucrats of the Ford Motor Company. Perhaps this is a reference to... Uh, visionary filmmakers fighting with the studio execs for creative control in their race to the finish line. But really, that doesn't explain why it's such a massively enjoyable movie. Well, it's a massively enjoyable movie because it has nice, clean conflicts. You know, you have who wants to beat the uppity Italian. He tries to buy the uppity Italian who always wins the always wins at Le Mans. And he needs to have Ford seem sexy and glamorous, and there's no better way than by winning these races. So he tries to buy Ferrari. Ferrari basically tells him to get bent. And and, and not just get bent, but insults him. And and the, the the great insult isn't that he has ugly factories and he makes ugly cars. The great insult is that remember he's not Henry Ford, he's Henry Ford the second. Now that's a real killer because the thing that I think we can all agree on is Henry Ford I, I mean, horrible man, vicious anti-Semite, but a world historical figure. You know, there are reasons why in the Soviet Union, Fordism was considered to be a good thing rather than a bad thing. Yes. You know, he invented mass production. He also invented the idea of paying your workers a lot so they can actually buy your product. Or not invented, but he was for that idea. He was a creator of stuff. He was kind of like the guy's who are making the car, who are working for Ford. Henry Ford II, now there's the guy who's inherited the money, wants the glory. He's a corporate guy. It's all about his name and his company. These other guys are, are basically loose cannon guys. They're obsessed with cars. They care about cars. The Christian Bale character, who's a, who plays the, the difficult Brit, only cares about cars and his family and is obsessive and obnoxious Whereas the Matt Damon character, you know, Carol Shelby, is the Texan who kind of smooths it between them. And the conflicts between all those people is extraordinarily interesting. It's fun to watch the cars go fast. And it, it's just a, a classic old-fashioned entertainment. I mean, in, in the terms of the Scorsese dynamic, James Mangold may be making a film about the conflict between doing the corporate thing and the artistic artisanal thing. Yet, he's less troubled by it. He's clearly making the Ford version of the film. And like the thing is, you know, for a long time, Fords were really good cars. It's a very successful mass entertainment. And I don't sneer at it because I think I, like most people, I probably grew up learning to love movies, watching this kind of movie, as opposed to the more arti officially artistic kinds of movies. 
And, you know, Matt Damon is, he's kind of a Ford actor. He knows he's a movie star. He knows what you want from it. We don't want, we don't want to see Ford versus Ferrari and have him digging deep into, in, into his emotions. We want him to, to smooth it along. And, in fact, the movie does all of that. Ford v. Ferrari is playing in theaters now. Martin Scorsese's film, The Irishman, opens this week on Netflix. John Powers, thanks for coming in today. Always happy to be here. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.